Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Acts chapter 4. And this evening our subject is part 2 of a message I began a couple of weeks ago entitled, The Characteristics of a Growing Church. And this is the final message on the series, in our series of evangelism. And I thought it was appropriate that we would end with the sermon on church growth. The object of evangelism is to increase the numbers of people that are in the kingdom of God. Unless you be confused about this, there, there is a difference in the kingdom of God and the church. And I hadn't planned tonight to go into those differences, and so I won't. But we will very shortly take up that subject. When we get to Matthew chapter 16, we'll see the difference between the kingdom and the church. But for now, you can just take this simple word from me on this, that an addition to the kingdom of God is not necessarily an addition to the church, but an addition to the church is an addition to the kingdom of God. Now that you, let me say that again, so if you missed it, every addition to the kingdom is not an addition to the church, but every addition to the church is an addition to the kingdom. And so our goal as a church then is to witness to people in order to bring them into the kingdom of God so they can enter the kingdom of God. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter or he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we preach in order that the Holy Spirit might take the word that we preach and work regeneration in the heart of the sinner and bring him to the knowledge of Christ and to repentance and faith so he can trust in, that sinner can trust in Christ. And then we bring those people, we, our goal is to bring them into the church where we can teach them, where we can help to build their faith and to make them productive servants of God within his church. And that's the way that a church grows. Every person becomes a minister And when we follow the advice of that song, each one reach one, and that's the way that the Lord grows his church. Now, the model for church growth is found in the book of Acts. Uh, This is the history of the church in the first century, and here's where we find a blueprint for how a good, vibrant, excited church can be a beacon for Christ in this world that's gone so terribly wrong. Now, I'd like to begin reading tonight in the 23rd verse of chapter 4. And uh, you should be familiar with this passage by now. We've read it a couple of times. And uh, this is after the apostles' first experience of persecution for preaching the gospel. And we would expect that after persecution that we would find a very dejected group, that they would be weak and they would be depressed. But instead, what we find in the scriptures is a group of people that Ask God to give them more boldness to keep on preaching the word of God. Now, if you'll look here at our text, and I I might add this comment too before we begin here, that we are in a time in our own church history that I can feel some of this among the membership of the church that we're a little bit disappointed, maybe some sadness and anxiety over difficulties that we've had in the church for the last couple of years. And thank the Lord, we're not talking about moral difficulties. Uh, We haven't had moral problems in the leadership like some churches have had. We haven't had any divisions over doctrine, and we thank the Lord for that as well. But what we are experiencing is this economic downturn in this particular part of the country, which seems, I don't know, we seem to be harder hit than a lot of other places. And so we've had people leave the church, going to look for jobs, and 
um, left for other financial reasons or something along, usually along those lines. And we get a little bit upset about that and we depress, we're depressed about that because people that we love leave the church and we hate to see them go. But I want to remind you of what, how this church got started, that when this church was built, it was in the middle of a cornfield. I mean, there was nobody around. I mean, this was out in the middle of nowhere. And a man and his wife and a few helpers started a church here. And over the years, that church grew. And I believe that the Lord who started this church can do the same thing today. He's the one who builds the church, and he hasn't gone out of business. And if we take care of the Lord's business, then we'll see our church grow and be what God wants it to be. Now, if you look then at Acts chapter 4, verse number 23, as I said, this is after the apostles had been uh, experienced some persecution for preaching, and they had been brought before the Jewish council. Verse number 23 says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. You know, that's an important part of Scripture right there, that the men who took Jesus, at, um, they didn't take him as if God was... Uh, they were doing something that God was not going to allow them to do and God was powerless to let them take Christ or that Christ himself was powerless to do anything about it. But here the word of God says that they did exactly what God had appointed for them to do. Jesus knew what would happen to him when he came to this earth. Verse 29, And now, Lord, let their threatenings, uh, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by thy name or by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. A true New Testament church does not just spring up, and by virtue of it being here, or being in the world, just begins to conquer the world for Christ. The church has to have a certain character. There has to be certain characteristics that are present in order for a church to become a growing church. And if you listen to church growth experts, they will tell you that the growth of a church is always uh, centered on or revolving around the marketing plans that a church can put into place, all the gimmicks that can be used or the contextualization. 
And almost all of that is centered in human effort so that what comes out of it is a weak or and a watered-down gospel or practically no gospel at all. Well, Jesus was in no mood for a change in the message of the gospel. And when he was confronted with a different idea about how to worship God, he said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I want to take you back to the first thought that we had in the message a couple of weeks ago. And we learned this about this church. It was a growing church because it was a worshiping church. The psalmist said, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That is the most important duty of a church. That is for us to worship the Lord. And that's because the church belongs to him. All the work that we do in the church is his work. God expects and he demands from his people that we would worship him. From all of the creation, God expects worship. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And I'm sure many of you are, most of you are probably familiar with Psalm 19 that begins that way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Bible is telling us that the creation shows the handiwork of God so that inanimate things speak the glory of God. And yet it's God's rational creatures, the ones who really ought to know better, that don't give God the glory that he deserves. Now this is what God expects from his people. He says, you are to worship me. And so we start everything that we do with the worship of God. We worship him through the word, And that requires our presence here to hear it. We worship him with our praise. We worship him for who he is, praising him for all the bountiful provisions that God has given. We praise him for the power that gives us life and breath in all things. We praise him for his providence. We know that whatever happens in our church comes because or happens because we are guided by the providence of God. And then we see that the early church worshiped God with their prayers. They were praying people, and they got what they needed because they asked God for it. Not asking is the key to not receiving. And so what we have to do is change that statement around to a positive one. As the Word of God states it, ask and ye shall receive. And then very importantly, they worshiped God with Holy Spirit power. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So that was the subject last time. We talked about worship. And as I've said, nothing happens here until we worship God in spirit and in truth. Nothing is going to happen in the way of church growth in the way it should until we open our hearts to God and we worship and we glorify him. Well, we need to move on this evening to consider other characteristics of a growing church. And there are many that we could find in this passage, many more aspects of it that we can find in Scripture. But it's very important for us to note that not all churches grow in exactly the same way. Not all churches have the same kind of ministries. Some have people with talents that are tweaked to serve in a particular area. A church may have a certain mix of people that enables them to do different kinds of ministry. And because our church is a smaller church, we may not have the numbers of people that are necessary to do those kinds or different kinds of ministry. And so we find that not all churches grow exactly in the same way. They don't all have exactly the same ministries. But all churches must have the same focus. 
And there are three major characteristics that I wanted to, wanted to emphasize when we talk about church growth. The first of those was worship, that a church has to be a worshiping church. Then the second one that we need to talk about is that a church needs to be a working church. And that's what this church in the book of Acts was. It was a working church. All growing churches are working churches. There has to be a focus on the work that we do here. And if you join the church in order just to sit in the pew and watch somebody else do what we do, then you're not obeying God and helping our church to be a growing church. And that's a very serious consideration for people that we bring into the church because if we go out and we evangelize like these previous eight or nine messages have told us to do, if we evangelize and we bring people into the church, what are we going to do with them when we get them here? Who's going to train the children? And and who's going to work discipling new converts? Who who will teach new classes that we're able to start? Who will take care of people's babies? We can't all... Just sit in the pew and not be willing to work. Now, praise God that we do have a church where there are people that are willing to be overworked. That we have folks in our church that when they see a need, they just take up the slack. They put their hand to the plow, and as the Word of God says, they don't look back. Well, this first church was a very busy, active church in the Lord's work. And I want you to hear this especially, that they were active in the lives of each other. Now, let's consider that work for just a few minutes. First of all, the reason for their work. And I really think you ought to take some notes on some of this stuff so that you don't forget about it. But verse 32 says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. I don't mind telling you that there is a variety of opinions as to what that verse actually means. Some have proposed that this was a church that was in total communal living. And if they were, then that's not necessarily a pattern for all churches because we find other churches in the New Testament that didn't work this way. And if they did uh, work in, uh, they were a communal church, then they did did that out of necessity. But rather than just accepting that this is a communal church... I read a comment some years ago by Henry Morris that swayed my opinion somewhat as to what this means. But Morris says that the word common here in this place means ordinary. That those that were well off, and I'm talking about those who have a lot of material goods, those that were well off considered what they had was just ordinary. These are things that were supplied by God. They were ordinary things that God does. And so they were willing to part with what they had for any reason that might be beneficial to the whole group of Christians. Now, I like that interpretation. It makes sense to me. But whatever interpretation of this we take, this is a group that is definitely not forced. They're not coerced into forfeiting their goods. And we've all heard of these religious communities or communes where people are brainwashed and they turn everything they have over to some religious nut. That's definitely not the case here. These are not people that are coerced into giving. These are people that freely gave of themselves. And so what it does tell us is that there, there are some very definite reasons for, for working together. There, there's reasons for this. Now, we look at this and we see first that they shared a common love. The Bible says here that they are of one heart. And I think that's a love that really can't be adequately described in human terms because we're not talking here about something that 
people normally do. This, this, I think, is a melding together of the hearts of the people by the Holy Spirit. And this is something that goes beyond normal human relationships. God put something extra special into the lives of this church so they really did care about one another. Have you ever thought about the reason that you care so much about a person on the other side or the opposite side of this auditorium when uh, they're a brother and sister in Christ and yet they're not a blood relative of yours? Uh, You don't have any obligation, you would think, as far as your blood is concerned. You might have only known a person just a short time. But when we stand up here and we talk about people that have needs and we uh, want to pray for people or we might take a special offering for someone... People don't usually come and ask me, well, who's that special offering going to? Who's going to receive that? Because I might not want to give unless I know who that person is. Nobody ever asks me that. And you know why? Because people in the same church care about another, one another, that it doesn't make any difference who it is. They just want to help somebody. And, and this is something that the Holy Spirit really has to work in your heart so that you're willing to do. And sometimes what people will do is forsake their own needs in order to care for the needs of others. How do you explain something like that? What person that doesn't really have the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart would consistently do that kind of thing? I'm aware, and so are you, that there are people that are lost, don't even know the Lord, and they're philanthropic, they may give money to charities or whatever, but we don't see the same kinds of connections that you see within the church body itself. And that type of love, according to the scriptures, is one of the evidences of our Christianity. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And there John is very clearly talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. There, there, there are those that have spiritual life and these are the ones that love the brethren. And we know that this is not a common love that's experienced by all people, regardless of whether they know Christ or not. We're told that a lack of this kind of love is actually an indication that there is a very serious problem going on inside. If you listen to 1 John 4, 20 and 21, it says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So love, that's something that really does need to be cultivated in a Christian's life. Showing love for one another. That is really a powerful witness of our faith. When do we see that kind of love demonstrated? Can you think about it and look over our church and see some examples of this kind of love? What about a family who decides to do the laundry for a man who's dying of cancer. That happened just a few weeks ago in the case of Bill Adams, who was dying, and someone in our church decided just take the laundry home and help him out and do his laundry for him because he couldn't, couldn't any longer do it. What about members of the church that would take a part of their day and take someone to the doctor that has no way to get there, take them to the hospital and sit with them when... They're going to have a surgery, sit in a hospital room and wait that out and just comfort those people as they go through something like that. I mean, when, when do you see that? You see that among members of a church. And you see it when people do things like taking food to someone who's 
just been in the hospital and they can't take care of themselves when they get home. And so the members of the church come together and for a few days there take meals to that person to try and help them out. That's what you get in a church. That's the kind of love that a church needs to have. People in the church need to care about one another. And I want to caution you about something when we talk about this, is that you need to be sure that you are not always on the receiving end and never on the giving end of these kinds of acts of kindness. Now, these kinds of things are what helps a church to grow. When you have acts of kindness in a church, that cements the people together. There's a bond there. So they shared a common love. Secondly, we see they shared common life. And notice these words, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. One heart might be easy for us to understand as common purpose, but the words here, one soul, that's not a repetition of the first thought. This has very special significant meaning. I like John Gill's comment on this. He says there was an entire consent and agreement in doctrine. In matters of faith, they were all of one mind and judgment, and there was a perfect harmony in their practice. They all performed the same duties and observed the same commands and ordinances and all pursued the same interest and had the same ends and views, and there was a strict union to their affections to each other. Their souls were knit to one another... So that there was, but as it were, one soul in this large body of Christians. That really fits Paul's development of church doctrine in 1 Corinthians. There he talks about the church is is a body, that we're all members of one body. And this body comes together and we have all these different body parts, but we all work together as one whole living, breathing organism. Now, I'm especially struck by the beginning of Gill's statement. He says, there was entire consent and agreement in doctrine. In matters of faith, they are of one mind and one judgment. And there's where you find the reason that we very stringently hold to one core system of belief. What you don't find in this church is a hodgepodge of all different types of doctrines that have been brought in and mixed together into one group that calls themselves Christian. We don't accept all the doctrines that are out there that people call Christian. The doctrine of the church is the life of the church. And what you can never have is you can never have competition in doctrine. What that does is to cause strife and division in a church. Whenever you let an aberrant doctrine get hold, then you're going to end up with aberrant church growth. Unbiblical doctrine is a cancerous tumor that grows in a church and will destroy it. It will actually kill it. So what we can't have to have a unified growing church is to have somebody who undermines the doctrine that's being taught from the pulpit. We all have to be in agreement with the doctrine that's being taught. Now, churches put out statements of faith for this purpose, so, and they do that so that we all understand that we agree on the doctrines that ought to be taught to the body of the church. The Bible tells us what is the truth and what should be taught, and the church as one soul and one body needs to stick as a coherent mass to that one doctrine, and we all need to work together in that doctrine. Well, what happens when a church loves as it should and when the life of the church is as it should be? Well, we'll look at that next, and that's the results of the work. If you look at verses 34 and 35, neither was there any among them that lacked... 
For as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. Now, when you begin to work in the church instead of just sitting, I promise that it's going to make a difference in you. One of the things it'll do is make you physically tired. That happens. But it also makes you physically fit. And perhaps you don't start out gung-ho at first and you're you're just kind of skeptical about getting involved with things but when you do become involved in your church that's when you become more and more molded into the image of Christ now what do we find with this church what kind of results are there from their work well we see that there was servanthood servanthood and, and that's the willingness to be used in the service of others now, I mentioned a moment ago that while we were discussing this uncommon love that's felt among church members, this is a love that actually leads you into the service of others. That's the character of Christ. What we're trying to do is be molded into the image of Christ and becoming a servant of other people puts us into that, into that image that Christ bore for us. Philippians bears down on that principle in the second chapter where Paul writes, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, listen, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mind of Christ. When you become the servants of others, you have the mind of Christ. And what we're talking about here is is not somebody that really wants to have their way all the time. This is where you defer to other people. There are some people in the church that think it's their job to keep everybody straight. I mean, this is my responsibility. My responsibility is to watch you and make sure that you do what's right. And usually when you have somebody like that, it means that everything must go their way or they're unhappy people. Lots of folks want to be the Pope in the church. Everybody wants that position. We should not have one person or one family that has supreme power in the church. What God wants us to do is to love one another and serve one another with the mind of Christ. Well, these were people like that. Philippians says that Jesus took on him the form of a servant. And so those that are Christ-like will do likewise. The second result of their work is selflessness. And that's also found in Philippians. When you regard others more highly than you, then the needs of others will come first. And and that's a difficult concept for us to grasp and one that's difficult for us to fulfill. And you know why? Because it's not natural. It's not natural to think that my needs are secondary to someone else's needs. Not natural. But isn't that what Jesus came to do? He came to change the human nature. And we receive a new nature when we trust in Christ. Where's the evidence of that? Well, it's in these kinds of things. You become selfless. And one of the blessings that I had in my early married life was uh, with my mother-in-law. I know I I joke about these things quite a bit. But my mother-in-law, she's passed away some years ago. And she was a really good mother-in-law. One of the things that she did was that she always, with her children and her grandchildren, she always put herself behind those kids. I mean, when, you, when she didn't have very much, she would go without. She would go without herself in order to give that to someone else. 
whenever there was any extra money, and when there was little money, she made sure that she gave up what she had in order to take care of the needs of her family. My dad was like that in his ministry. He gave away, actually gave away thousands of dollars to people that needed help, and he never expected any return. One of the earliest, one of the memories of my early childhood was there was a family in the church that was in uh, losing their house, and and uh, this is not like we have today where you have all the uh, problems with people losing their houses now because of the uh, the way the economy has gone. This was this they were losing their house for another reason. The, these were people that were members of the church, or at least the mother and the children were members of the church, and um, the the dad was. I guess you you just say he was a sorry drunkard because what he did was just drink up all of the money and so they didn't have money to pay their house payments and they were getting ready to be set out on the street. And so my dad bought their house and allowed them to live in it. Now, he wasn't a rich man, but God gave him the resources to do this. Instead of keeping that money for himself, he went and bought their house then allowed those people to live in it. Well, what happened after a few years was this was a family that got crossways with the church, and so they turned against my dad. But he never, um, never became bitter about that, and it never did stop him from helping anybody that he could. And I wish I had the character, as much character as my dad, to do many of the things that he did, but he was a good example for me. And in the end, the more that he gave, the more that God blessed him. So selflessness, that's a characteristic of a true Christian. And we know that Jesus was the ultimate in selflessness. He said, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then thirdly, a result of their work and God working in them is sacrifice. The result was sacrifice. And I think what we need to do is think over our lives as Christians and Just account, count up, maybe even make a list, if there's anything to put on it, of the things in your life that you have sacrificed for Christ. What have you sacrificed for your church? How much of your time have you given up? Do you bring in your tithes and offerings as you should, as God requires? Here we have people that went beyond the ordinary. I mean, so much so that we see here, the Bible says that they were willing to sell all of their possessions. They didn't count anything material as something they had to hold on to. They sold all of their possessions and brought the money in so that all the needs of the people could be met. A growing church is a church that is filled with personal sacrifice. And again, isn't that the mind of Christ? We're striving to be like him. You go on reading in that passage in Philippians chapter 2, and there you find uh, Christ's humility spoken of in the passage, that he came and gave his life for others. The Apostle Paul learned that lesson. He said, be followers of me as I also am of Christ. And he was willing to do what Christ did. Now, here's what he said to a less than appreciative church. This was to the Corinthian church. He wrote this in 2 Corinthians. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. You know, that's a a hard thing right there, isn't it? Is that to do something for people that maybe turn on you, do something for people that don't appreciate what you do for them, But you're not looking for their approbation. You're looking for commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because this is the example of the way that he loved. You, you look at what Christ did for us. He came to this world and died for us when he got no love in return. We didn't love Christ. We didn't care anything about him. But that didn't stop him from going to the sacrifice of the cross. So servanthood and selflessness and sacrifice, those kinds of characteristics would make anybody want to be a part of a church that practices such things. So do you want a growing church? Then you need to check out where you are on the list of all these personal Christian characteristics. So we see the church is a worshiping church, it's a working church. And then finally this evening, the subject of our series, we come back full circle to that, and that is they were a witnessing church. Verse 33 says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Somehow I don't get the mental picture of a group of disciples that are cowering in fear, and they're very timid about their faith. They had good news. They have news that needed to be broadcast to everybody. Well, since I preached eight messages previous to these two on the subject of witnessing, I'm just going to not go back into all those things, but let me conclude this series with two quick thoughts for you. First of all, they witnessed in the power of God. This is very important for you to remember, that when you go out, you don't go alone. These people knew that. When they went to, this is why they prayed. I mean, they knew that when they went out that God would be with them, that God was with them every step of the way. And so they had courage in that confidence. They really believed it. Sometimes I think that we forget about that. We don't go alone. We're not by ourselves in this. When Jesus gave the commission in chapter 1, verse 8 in Acts, he told them that they would receive power to be witnesses for him. God supplies the power. We don't go out in our own energy. And when we go out in the power of the Lord, as we should, we can count on God's help, God's power when we witness. Now, the reason that these people, uh, so many people were saved in that time, and you read of thousands of people that were saved there in the book of Acts, the reason that they were was not because of the quality of the preaching, not because they have some dynamic speakers that are able to grab your attention and make you sit on the edge of the seat. And it wasn't because they had dynamic worship services. All this and everybody going crazy in the world. It's not that. It's not what people think dynamic worship services. These people saw others saved because they operated their church in the power of God. You know, I'm happy to know this because if it depended upon my ability, my ability to preach for souls to be saved, that's what God put all of his confidence in me and said, you go do this and you're, you're the one that's going to make it all happen, folks, we'd all be hurting. We're, we're not going to be successful on my back. And I don't, I don't want the pressure of needing a day of Pentecost every time that I preach. You know, there was a well-known preacher who said that he had a bigger day than Pentecost. And, of course, that was a lie like many of the other things that he said. Nobody's ever seen a day like Pentecost. Those preachers can have that kind of pressure. I don't need that pressure. You know what Paul said to Timothy? Very simple thing. He said, Timothy, preach the word preach the word. He didn't say to Timothy, now Timothy, what you have to do, you've got to preach down cloven tongues of fire every time you get in the pulpit. 
Paul said, preach the word. So that's what we do. We just preach the word and let him take that preached word and put the power in the pitiful pulpit. So they had, thank you, Tabor, for the amen. So they had power of God in their witnessing. Now, secondly, they witnessed in the provision of grace. Now, the scripture says, and great grace was upon them all. And I think there are several ways that they experience grace. And we need to remember that God is the provider of all grace. They had grace among the people. Back in chapter 2, verse 46, and they continued continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as should, such as should be saved. Now, you see the word favor? They had favor with all the people. That's the word charis. It's the same word that is translated grace throughout the New Testament, the word charis. And so when you give people the good news of salvation, you will find favor with the people. I don't know a, a saved person that doesn't have high regard for the one that first brought them the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, many people will instruct you in your Christian life, throughout your life. Uh, many instructors, teachers, pastors, there can be multitudes of those, but there's only one person that first brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anybody that's saved always, I mean, I would think, you always think of that person. You thank the Lord for that person who first brought you the gospel. And so if you're a soul winner, you can be sure that you have the favor, you have the grace of your converts. Then you can also imagine that they had favor with the people because of the miracles. Go back to the beginning of the third chapter. I mean, the thing that precipitated the uh, persecution that they experienced, there was a 40-something man who was lame from his birth and the apostles healed him. Nobody else could have done that. People that have grave, had grave illnesses came to them and they found hope in the message of the apostles. Individuals and families that found hope in nothing else, they found mess, uh, a hope in the message that the apostles gave. And so they found favor with those people. And then there was also grace upon these because they were the first to receive the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. They were the members of the church that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, despite what you hear, this is the only group in all the history of the world that ever has or ever will have an actual baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is a one-time occurrence. And when the Holy Spirit came, he validated these saints. He sanctioned them as a church. And they were the witness for Christ in the world. And then great grace was upon them because they were under the protecting hand of God. And that's what they prayed for in verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. You see, if God had not protected this group, then before they ever got started, the Jews and the Romans would have squashed them like bugs. I mean, there is no other reason why they were able to continue and do what they did unless they were under the protecting hand of God. God's grace was upon them. 
And we thank the Lord for that. Every one of us should thank the Lord for that because they were faithful to preach the gospel and do what God told them to do. That is the reason why we have it today. It's why we're able to sit in a church like this tonight. If it wasn't for them, there would be nobody here. There would be no one to preach to us because the gospel would have died out. God knew that. And so he put his protecting hand upon them. Now what I want as a minister here, as the pastor of this church, is I want the, that same kind of power and protection that God gave them. I want the same worship that they had. I want the same work that they did. I want the same desires. I want the same ability. And for this to be a growing church, we must desire these things to be a part of our church. At a very minimum, we have to have these characteristics. We have to worship, we have to work, and we must witness for Christ. I thank the Lord that I'm able to be a part of Berean. I mean, I, I praise his name for that. I, I, I make a conscious effort in these trying times that we've had in the past months and years with people that have left because of the economy. I, I have to make a conscious effort not to be discouraged by those things. But I'm always lifted up because I know that it's Satan who plants those seeds of doubt. That's what he wants us to be. He wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to be defeated. He wants us to sit here and say, woe is me. What are we going to do? Well, it's not a matter of what we're going to do. It's, what a, it's a matter of what God will do through us. And if we give ourselves to him and we have these kinds of characteristics in our lives, God will work through us. So we may not be a member, a church with a thousand members, but we're still a great church. We're still a church that God can use. We, we, are a, we have people that are spiritual. We have people that are servants. We have people that are selfless. There are people here that are sacrificial. We have common love. We have common committed lives. And God says if you have that and you all pull together and you all work together with his help, we will become a growing church. And that's what we want God to do for us. That's what we want here. We want to bring those souls into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great blessings. We're thankful, Lord, that we have a church here that we can come to and we can worship you. And Lord, we have people that we love and that we can work with and just so many people that give of themselves. We're so thankful for that. But I also know this, Lord, that, that there's none of us that gives all that we can give. There's plenty of us that have held things back and we're really not working as hard as we should, not witnessing as much as we should, not praying as much as we should. I pray, Lord, you would change our minds about that and help us to see if we want to be a growing church, all of these things we've talked about, the love, the servanthood, the selflessness, the sacrifice, all of that, all of that, that's the ingredients to make the church grow. Lord, help us and we surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.